I spent my college days throwing perfect passes and trash-talking BYU. And I spent my college career smashing Utah Utes' faces into the mud. I'm Jason Buck. And I'm Scott Mitchell. After our careers in the NFL, we still talk trash. But mostly to each other on our podcast, Rivals. We talk all things football, college, and NFL. A little bit about life and growing up rivals. Download it each week wherever you get your podcasts or on the KSL Sports app. Go Cougs! And go Utes! I'm Scott Trout, CEO of the domestic litigation firm Cordell & Cordell. We help men deal with the life changes triggered by divorce, such as child custody and property division, among many others. But life changes also occur after divorce. These changes can make parts of your existing court order irrelevant or harder to follow. If you feel a modification to your court orders might be necessary, talk to us at Cordell & Cordell. We're a partner men can count on. Contact CordellCordell.com, 1065 East Hillsdale Boulevard, Suite 310, Foster City, California, 94404. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership. I'm Jess Larson. Today on the show, I've got Chris Jones. The hurdles we're just dealing with, um, I think, giving people the proper sparks. You know, sometimes we'd have a, a card or a, a story prompt that might have been a little vague but clear to us. I love that you're writing books. Uh, you know, that's something I'm a fan of. I was an English major, and so... One of the books I'm writing is The Inevitable F-Word, How to Turn Failure into Forward Motion. CEO of Stonewell, Chris, thanks for making time. Thanks for having me. So uh, give us the 30-second elevator pitch of Stonewell. Stonewell is basically a think tank and incubation company that builds businesses and products that build people. Okay, great. So um, give us a couple of examples of some of your other clients or projects you're doing one of the companies i'm working with right now is called values we're sharing and its function is to build leadership develop leadership curriculum uh, specifically in the area of workplace incivility trying to reduce the temperature within companies and help them work better as teams that's great so uh this episode will come out on the 17th the launch of uh, your your kickstarter tell us about this game oh my gosh this game is amazing it's a music inspired storytelling game it's designed to get people family friends together and tell imaginative stories with music in the background. Uh, they have cards like plot cards and object cards that give them places and op- things to start with, and then they start telling these amazing stories. And it's called Spark, right? Spark. So um, I know that there's a kind of an interesting backstory. Do you want to give us the, the quick overview on the backstory? Well, when my kids were tiny, I used to get them together to put them to bed, and I would turn on music in the background like soundtracks. And when I would play the music and begin to orate stories based on the mood and tone of the music, it was as though I unzipped the ceiling and the walls fell to the earth, and I transport my kids to these magical places. And it was powerful. It was one of these things where they would sit on the edge of their bed, and they were like, Dad, I want to be this character today. And it really got them excited. It never really put them to bed. It, It got them pretty wide awake. So... I would then later try this with employees as we'd be driving to film shoots and other things, and I would have adults. I had a CEO running one of my leadership companies. He was 56, and he's like, dude, I'm not a storyteller. I'm an accountant, right? And then all of a sudden, he'd start telling stories. It was amazing. So I would find that adults would enjoy it just as much as kids. Um, That's fun. You know, uh, I think that um, there's a lot of talk about storytelling these days, everybody, especially in the marketing world. Storytelling is a, you know, a buzzword. It's a, it's a really come to the forefront. Um, what I think is a little bit fun about your game is, uh, as we were looking through it, um, I kind of like the fast pace, kind of almost the improv yeah. aspect to yeah. it. Um, and then can you talk about, can you talk about your son and, and kind of that more 
that aspect of yeah of it for you? Yeah, I think where it took on really deep meaning for me was when my son was uh, diagnosed with cardiomyopathy. We had to take him to the cardiac intensive care unit at Primary Children's Hospital. When they did the diagnostics, and my my son, by the way, had Duchenne muscular dystrophy, which is a catastrophic muscle wasting disease. And it's fatal, 100% fatal. You don't survive. You know, they typically pass away in the mid-20s. My son was only 10. And so when we realized his heart was failing and he only had a few days to live, it was a terrifying experience. And we tried to insulate my son from that reality so he wouldn't freak out. We wanted him to just kind of, we, we didn't know what we were dealing with yet. My son wanted to leave the hospital. And as we, you know, we couldn't leave, so I would help him leave in other ways and I'd turn on music and I'd start telling him these imaginative stories and it was as though I took my son away without having to take him away and it was beautiful and we used that storytelling technique even when he came home on hospice for the few weeks he was with us that it was just a way to have journeys and experiences without really having to go anywhere that's great yeah. um you think about just the the connecting nature of story right um, my dad unfortunately passed away in a car accident a couple of years ago and I just remember all of the uh, the family trips. We had these big, long family trips, and uh, we we loved his stories. And uh, and so, as you were talking, you were running through the game. I kept thinking about my dad. Yeah. Um, so, talk about uh, how long fr- from your son passing away to deciding you were serious about this to actually getting the built the the game made. Well, you know, for the first four years after my son's passing, I would just I would write stories about my life experience with my son. I'd be making um, I'd be making meaning of my own suffering through my blog, Mitchell'sJourney.org, right? And uh, and so that's that's what I would start to do. I'd start to make sense of these stories, and I remembered the the stories we started to tell Mitch, and I thought, oh, you know, I should do something with this. And so about four years ago, uh, or four years after he passed away, I started to put some framework to this. How do I help people do this easily without having to be so abstract? And uh, yeah, it took about a year to start assembling the pieces, found a game publisher that was really interested in it. And, you know, now we're having a Kickstarter to kind of show market viability. I mean, the product's totally baked, totally works, but I think they just want to see what it looks like in the market. And so uh, if somebody listening to this today hops on Kickstarter, how, what does it cost? How do the rewards work? What do you guys, do you have that nailed down? Yeah, we do. So the first uh, couple hundred people that uh, get the game first, I mean, they're going to get a discount. But it, we're right now the the retail is thirty nine ninety five, so forty bucks. And then there's other perks that they spend a hundred bucks, they're going to get expansion packs that are totally hilarious, and you know, it just kind of goes up from there. You know, that's fun. So uh, Kickstarter and crowdfunding, this is an interesting world. You know, we we did a, a rescue mission for our charity, Child Rescue. Mm-hmm. We helped. Uh, we were working with another charity out of Central America and, and did one uh, down in Peru. And uh, it was something that I thought I knew about because you hear about it in the news, whatever. But then actually going through it and doing all the prep and and uh, finding out what it takes to have a successful one was an eye-opening experience for me. What's it been like for you? Oh, dude. About uh, maybe every other day, I think it's going to be a t- colossal failure. And then the next day, I think, oh, we're going to nail this thing. So at this point, I have no idea. I'm kind of right in the middle. You know, I, I don't sleep very well. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think we've got our pieces in place. Um, and we've done all that we can to make it a success. Sure. So, um, you know, the name of the show, Innovation and Leadership, there's obviously a lot of board games in the world. When you are thinking through, okay, there's such iconic games that people played with their college friends or they played growing up or whatever. And you're saying, why does the world need one more board game? Or what are we going to do to really differentiate? When you think about 
innovation and today everybody's, you know, AI and robots and stuff, right? Yeah. What about board games? What, what in your mind, what's innovation in board games or what did you have to think through? How do we make this set apart? It's a great question. I, you know, when I think about what makes this game different than all the others is I think so often in today's world of entertainment, we rely on other external factors to entertain us. This actually stirs up the entertainment that kind of comes from within, that we become the entertainment and it becomes an active entertainment rather than passive. In terms of storytelling, too, um, you know, a lot of other games, um, we rely on other storytelling parts. Here we're creating it all. And so, you know, people will walk away from this game that, have, that just love games. And they're saying, this is the funnest thing I've ever played. And I think part of it's because it requires so much from them. And then they realize how easy it is, actually, to, sell, to tell stories and to go on these kind of epic adventures together. And people are in tears laughing. Sometimes they're in tears crying, and other times they're just like, dude, that was the coolest thing. I wish we were recorded it, you know? So when you think about someone else who is listening to this and they're thinking, how does this apply to my life? Um, let, let's, let's pull back maybe one step. Some other board game inventor. <laughs> let's say there's one listening today. When you think about the principles that got this from an idea in your head to something that publishers are, are wanting to do that you've now got the Kickstarter... What's the, what's the innovation principle for you there? What's, we know that's what you did. How, what could someone else learn from that as they're trying to make their board game st- not seem like all the others? Reframe that question. Sure. If I'm, if I'm a board game manufacturer mm-hmm. or if I'm a board game inventor as well, what can I learn from your experience to make my board game more innovative or stand out? I think trusting in the creativity of your players is a huge factor. I mean, we all come to this world with ideas and insights and creative genius that are just relatively untapped. And I think if you give people the proper framework and sparks to create and innovate, you'll find that people have richer experiences. So if you're building games and you can tap into their creativity and they're leaning into to the, whatever that great game's trajectory is, you'll find that it'll be a lot more successful. Sure. So, um, I'm in the middle of writing my first book right now. Uh, I've got a co-author and I've thought about writing books for years and years. I'm a real audiobook nerd. And there are certain parts of it that uh, I'm finding stumbling blocks and stuff. What about you? What about writing all this? What did it just flow or what, what were, uh, what were some of the hurdles you had to overcome in terms of coming up with a game? Yeah. Oh man. Uh, hurdles were just dealing with, um, I think giving people the proper sparks, you know, sometimes we'd have a, a card or a, a story prompt that might've been a little vague, but clear to us. I love that you're writing books. Uh, you know, that's something I'm a fan of. I was an English major. And so one of the books I'm writing is the inevitable F word, how to turn failure into forward motion. And, you know, I think sometimes if we don't look at our little stumbles and we don't learn from that as a forward motion event, uh, we can just kind of either stall out or just get discouraged and walk away. And so when we found these little failures, one of the struggles we had building the game was coming up with competitive modes. Uh, competitive modes are really important. We want, people didn't just want to tell fun, imaginative stories. They wanted to... Yeah, my, my, my wife loves board games. She has to win. Yeah, totally, dude. So that's what we found. A lot of people want that. And so we started finding that, oh, this doesn't work and that doesn't work. But you know what we did? As we started to solve the equation of competitive storytelling, we came up with like four other games that are insanely cool, like add-on packs to the initial game. So what's coming in the future in the, future, uh, the world of storytelling is a rich tapestry of new games. Well, that's fun. Um, when, you think about, um, when you think about inventing new stuff and how to stand out from the crowd, who, who do you look up to? Who are, who are heroes of yours, or whether that's authors or other entrepreneurs or, or people that you think are doing it right? 
Wow. Uh, you know, I, this probably sounds pretty trendy or cliche, but I, I think Elon Musk is a total stud. I mean, I, I think his philosophy on, look, we're going to fail. We're going to make mistakes, but what do we do with this and how do we pick up and learn from it? I think is a, a real guidepost for me. You know, I think back in the day when I was younger, my entrepreneurial career, you know, failure was almost a shame word. It was this sort of like, oh my gosh, you failed, like get away. But in reality, we're all going to do it. And it's, we're failing fast and in smart, you know, that'll make a difference as to whether we succeed or not. You know, um, I remember, uh, and I really wish I could remember whose story this was, but uh, an example of that that made a ton of sense to me, somebody like Jimmy Fallon or somebody who's famous today, okay? <laughs> this is way worse story because I can't remember who it was. But they had started, for their high school newspaper, they had been able to get interviews with really famous comedians like Adam Sandler and people at the time. And the advice that they got repeatedly, maybe this is Seth Rogen, I can't remember who it was, but the advice that they got was, um, you know, when you get out there and do stand-up, uh, you're going to be terrible for two straight years. Mm. That's okay. That's how you get good. So get up there and get booed. Get up there and be bad. That's, that's how you get good. This is, this is what you need to do. And he's like, and I was terrible, <laughs> right? And, but the expectation that falling off the bike is, learn, is how you learn how to ride a bike Versus falling off a bike means that you're not a bike rider. Right. You know? Yeah. Uh, I, I thought it obviously was a huge service to them. And um, obviously nobody wants to fail any more than you need to. Like, mm -hmm. let's not go out of our way to, right. to have any extra failures. For sure. But when all of a sudden it's not like a self-judgment, oh, I must be a bad person. I must not be an entrepreneur or I must not be an author. Yeah. You know? Um, versus an anticipated part of the, oh, like that's how the sport is played. Yeah. It is interesting, isn't it? It is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I've seen too many people shy away from growth opportunities just because they're afraid or flinching, and they shouldn't be. I mean, you just run, you make smart decisions, you study what other people do, you make informed decisions, and you just, you go as fast and hard as you can and learn. Um, so thinking about that, you know, there's always a balance between both sides, right? Mm -hmm. In your mind, um, doing entrepreneurial things you've done, what's your what's your decision criteria to say, okay, um, we can afford to risk this much and know it's all going to fail. Or like, how do you, how do you make the decision of how hard to push on something that's uncertain so that you can still survive it? Oh man. If we all had the perfect formula, I don't think there would be failure, right? Yeah, for sure. Uh, I think a lot of times we like to just measure the opportunity on potential return and the level of effort it takes to get there. So if we can make a quick, rapid prototype of something, prove it out, and prove it out through lots of different you know, demographics, then we have a pretty good sense that there might be something there, and we go even further and harder. But uh, I think it's all contextual. You know, Some efforts require more investment and energy than others. So... And so my question for you is, because I have underdone it and I have overdone it, I'm interested in, in your personal criteria. Hey, here's how I think about it. I think I'm going to push until it hurts or, you know, I, I, you know, I like to get a new pair of shoes before I get rid of the old ones. Or what, what's, what's kind of the personal criteria that you're saying how hard to push on this or how to know whether to invest more in this one or not? My personal criteria. Voice of the customer, 100%. You know, if they say, yeah, dude, I'm in. And, and there are people that don't have a vested interest in me. I mean, to me, that's the most important thing. My potential buyers, if they look at it and actually spend a little money on the early version of it, I feel like there's something there. Other than that, if, if I, and so I guess my, my point is, is that if I can get to my customer's answer as quickly as possible and that they can prove it with their pocket, not just their mouth, I'm in and I'll push hard and I try to get there as fast as I can. So uh, I love this, uh, prove it with your pocket. 
right? Because yeah. how many of us have gone out and talked to the person that we think is the ideal buyer, said, if I made this, would you buy it? They say yes, yeah. we make it, then they don't buy it. Dude, so there's this other book I got planned, and I'm gonna, it's called Great Idea, But I Ain't Buying It, which is everyone loves these ideas, but at the end of the day, if they buy in with behavior or money, those are the things that matter most, and I'm, I'm fascinated with that. When people get excited about an idea, but actually when, when, when the rubber hits the road, are they really going to do something? That's the mystery, right? Well, and it's interesting, um, and, and maybe I think it's an image thing, how often I want to over-prototype something. You know, I look at my heroes, people at IDEO, you know, Tom Kelly or, or these folks, and they're like, they're prototyping like amazing uh, new medical instruments with like an expo marker duct tape to a, <laughs> to a, a tape dispenser. You, right. right. Uh, you know, I got to go to a class. I got to go to one of their classes at their facility in New York, um, at their offices in New York. And then one at Stanford. And they're like, they're making apps for, for phones with like a giant cardboard or a f- giant foam core that they've cut the middle out of. They've got one person acting out what the video should be. And someone else videoing the giant, <laughs> foam core iPhone with an iPhone so that it looks like it was a thing. And they, you know, in like an hour instead of in 14 weeks, do you know what I mean? They're testing stuff out. And I think uh, it takes a certain amount of humility or a certain amount of confidence to have kind of crappy prototypes to get out and test. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I, you know, I think I struggle with that same thing as to wanting to make this polish. Sometimes people confuse my wireframe ideations as the finished product when I'm like, dude, this took me an hour. Like it, we want to take this a little bit further, but, um, yeah, that's, it's being willing to step away from perfection just to show the basic root concept is hard. It's scary because sometimes you want to show it as beautiful and polished. At least that's me. Yeah. Um, you know, when you think about Elon Musk, he's, he's controversial, he's inspiring. Uh, there's, there's like the cliche reasons to like him, just like Steve Jobs or something. But then, uh, so, you know, obviously I've seen his stuff forever, uh, but it was only last year that I finally read like a uh, biography on him. And uh, there's, there's so much more than just the media personality that, that I found fascinating. Any specific stories from his life that stood out to you or anything about him that, that you chose him as a, somebody to look up to? Well, you know, I don't sit around necessarily always taking notes on everybody's little uh, parts and pieces in their life. But I think one thing that struck me is when, you know, he launched SpaceX and was talking about their, their, their tests. He's like, when we fail, we're going to learn. And I just, that's, that's beautiful. I think that that's a, I mean, he's certainly no dummy. And, you know, they go and calculate it and he's got literal rocket scientists working for him. But he understands that when we do make mistakes, we're going to pick up and learn from it as quickly as we can. And I love that. That's great. Well, um, I think it's a good place, good place to end for part one. Everybody, please tune in to part two of our interview here with Chris. Um, and uh, please go to the Kickstarter and check out his new game, Spark. And uh, check out those rewards and, and support him if you can. Thanks so much, everybody. Well, that's it for the episode. One other thing I wanted to tell you about. If you remember the guys from Convoy uh, in episodes back, Ken Free and... Trent Mano. I went on one of their CEO trips to New York and I met a guy named Brent Thompson, very successful entrepreneur. He was former CEO of Jive Communications, big uh, company now, I think three or $400 million. Anyways, he, uh, he started a new company called blipbillboards.com. I'm super stoked they're a sponsor now. But I, I remember a year and some ago when I met him, I thought it was genius. Instead of having to buy six months or a year's worth of billboard um, for thousands of dollars, you can buy 
eight seconds at a time for like 10 or 20 cents. You pick what billboard you want it on, what time of day you want it to run. And it just puts so much power in the hands of, of marketers and CEOs who want to try something and see if it works. You can buy as many or as few as you want, change it as many times as you want. Uh, I think now our podcast is being advertised on billboards in like 18 different states because we have these guys as sponsors. We're pretty excited about it. Hope you check out blipbillboards.com. Thanks. Now's the time to find your color, your paint, and everything to get started during red, white, and blue savings at the Home Depot. Transforming your room is easier than ever. With the best deals online and in-store, you can confidently select your color and the tools for your next paint project. Get a colorful new experience and the right paint for the right price. Save $10 on one gallon and $40 off three and five gallons for a limited time only at the Home Depot. More saving, more doing. Limit 25 gallons per household. See store for details.